Welcome to a very special episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me on the other line, her favorite font is Times New Roman because it's a solid choice. It's Danielle Hanley. <laughs> that is a great one, but we're not alone. Also, Danielle, joining us on the other line, our favorite guest host of the Not Quite Great Books TV podcast. She's now only the second most iconic murder on the dance floor aficionado. It's Regan Levitt. She's back. <laughs> Hi, Regan. <laughs> welcome. This Very is, excited for you to be here. This is uh, an appropriate confluence of 2023. Regan obviously joined us for Young Poping all summer long. Yeah, I listened to I listened to the shit out of those episodes while I was gone. <laughs> and Danielle hates the Catholicism and the Young Pope, so, so it's impressive. Wow. Regan. It's not I, that I hate the Young Pope because, like, I'll watch Jude Law do anything. It's mm-hmm. just that, like, I don't care about a weird show. <laughs> then, then why is Daniel here, we might ask. Regan, why is this a very special episode, and how do you feel about returning for it? Oh, well, I'm always excited to be on the pod. Um, <laughs> it's uh, the joy of my existence, frankly. <laughs> Love. But the really exciting thing is that we're reviewing and talking about Saltburn, created by Emerald Fennel. The most iconic <sighs> film, the best cinematic experience of the decade, if not the century. You guys can't see my face, but my I'm groaning and my eyes are rolling because I do not share the enthusiasm of my illustrious co-hosts. We will note that on the notes it does say, um, begrudgingly viewed by Danielle Hanley, I, I would like to Regan Levitt, and thoroughly beloved by John McMahon. You can All, question. You can question it. Two of those are it. true. Two of <laughs> you, those are true. You can it's true truths and a lie. You can question it, but it's like I I was excited to see it because like. I'm interested in what Emerald Fennel like is up to, and also like I will do, I will watch Jacob Elordi in anything, including great call, including Euphoria, which was like way too disturbing a show for me. <laughs> After you were so excited about the debauchery in this movie, I was like, this is not going to be a movie for me. <laughs> Why I is all- that, Danielle? Say more. Well, it's like uh, first of all, this is a movie that's stressful. <laughs> And I don't like a stressful movie. <laughs> that, that I wasn't is fair. I loved it. I loved. I See, felt I alive. It, it is high intensity. Yeah, and like because you don't know what's happening, and the denouement is like right at the beginning. I, I don't like. A, you know what stresses me out? And it's interesting because like this is a thing that doesn't stress me out as much about the Americans, though it does sometimes. All of this is like lies. Like you know that Barry Keogh's. Uh, character is lying the whole time and it's just like I'm just sitting there waiting for like him to be found out because obviously like that's what the tension is ratcheting up around and that is my fucking nightmare (laughs) see this also makes me feel like I'm the world's most like naive little baby because I was really convinced that Oliver Mary Keown's character was 
fairly innocent the entire time. Uh, and then he was Regan. stumbling upon. <laughs> no. No, I, I fully admit this, Danielle. Well, I, I, I thought join... that they were going to be supernatural, actual vampires or murderers or in a cult or something. And when he got to Saltburn, like, I thought what Venetia was saying early on in the film was going to be real and really happen. I thought we were in a midsummer situation. Oh, I would have been into that more, probably. I want to join Regan, though, and this also gets into why I love this movie and that, like, uh, both of you know this and Regan and I talk. <laughs> Regan and I saw this twice. Um, <laughs> Regan and I saw it. We felt alive. We were like, we have to podcast about this. So then we <laughs> enlisted Danielle, and Danielle quote unquote begrudgingly agreed. And so yesterday, a couple weeks after seeing it for the first time, Regan and I drove over to Burlington to see it for a second time. Listen, I didn't begrudgingly agree to podcast. I was happy to podcast about it. One, because like I love you guys. Two, because the podcast is fun. And three, because I'm never the hater on this podcast. Yeah. Mm. I think, well, we'll see how, how constitutionally strong or stressful Danielle <laughs> finds being the hater. I already don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, to, to Regan's point, I mean, both of you know that I am not one to, like, try to guess the plot twists mm-hmm. or, like, what's going to happen yeah. plot-wise is something, watch it, is something is going. Like, even something I have not seen before, i.e. the first time I see I saw Saltburn, like... I wasn't trying to figure out what Oliver's actual deal was. Like, I was genuinely surprised when it's like, oh, he has a normal, like, boring-ass middle-class bourgeois, like, family situation oh. or something like that. Like, I was yeah. genuinely surprised because, like, I wasn't trying to predict what his deal was. It mm. wasn't that I was trying to predict it. It's just, like, evident from the jump. Like, there's something about the part of it that I wasn't, like, as clear on until it gets revealed later. And by the way, this oh, yeah, is we're a spoiler s- podcast. Spoilerful, 100% yeah. clear. So if, like, you have not seen Saltburn and want to see it and don't want it spoiled, like, turn off the pod now, come back to us when you're done. But Regan and I can vouch for you can see it after having seen it already and I know everything and be spoiled and love it still. Would, Regan, yeah. would you agree with that, Regan? I thoroughly agree. Um, I think there is a lot of detail and richness and yes. interesting things in this film that make it extremely rewatchable. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, listen, I don't want to rewatch it, but it's just because it's not <laughs> my taste. Like, I, I I agree with that. But, like, t- John, to the, to the, like, point about, like, oh, I wasn't trying to, like, figure it out. I also wasn't trying to figure it out. I it just think is you're like, like you're always trying to like anticipate the plot. It's a bit better than figuring it out, and like that's just not my vibe. So winterborny, Danielle. I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's a good it's, idea. No, but it's also just like it's just this. It's so obvious in this movie. Like it, it wasn't that. I, I think like I would have. I wouldn't have enjoyed it more if I hadn't figured it out, right? Like, mm. the the problem is, like, one, it was super obvious to me, and then I'm just waiting for the, like, the drama of the reveal, and that's, like, how the movie is structured, that you're progressing towards some kind of, like, drama or reveal or, like, explosion. I don't, like, I don't like that, that tension just, like, I don't like it. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, like, I can recognize that, like, it was, like, aesthetically, like, impressive. I can understand that this is, like, th- like your guys, like, this hits, like, your taste points, like, in a way that it just doesn't for mine. Um, and, like, John and I have debated this for <laughs> hours upon hours. Like, Correct. I don't think that makes, like, my taste better or worse. It just makes it different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Speaking of aesthetic things, should we talk about the hotness factor? In this <laughs> oh, yeah. What a great let's, segue. Let's start. Great it's job. Like, 
<laughs> Regan, you get to go first as the, yeah. as the segue. Because I am or... the queen of segues and transitions, and students sometimes listen to that about me. <laughs> um, I would say for me, 10 out of 10, everyone in this movie is so attractive. Um, but I do think it's really interesting because I think that this is shot in a very, like, female gaze. Hmm. Um and like despite like intensely queer undertones it doesn't have you can tell like this is a female auteur um yeah like and i think distinctly of this in like the iconic shot of oliver um where he's like laying in the grass or not oliver but of um felix where he's laying in the grass with like his arm over his head and you can just see all the rippling muscles but he looks so <laughs> soft and vulnerable um <laughs> That's- in addition to his one of our first scenes where he and Ollie are in the like discussing things with each other. Yeah. He's dressed like fucking Fred Jones from Scooby Doo and honestly outfits it never looked better. It hits. Honestly, also like the hair like mm-hmm. is both like is the Scooby Doo haircut and yeah. and also the early odds haircut and also just like looks amazing on him. Right. On Felix, on Jacob Elordi. Yes. I agree with you, though. I think, like, I, yes, female gaze. I mean, like, I would have called attention to the just, like, lots of male nudity happening. Yeah. yeah. Which feels like it doesn't happen in in most, like, mainstream release movies. Uh, that, too. And that feels connected to the female gaze to me. Yeah, because that's true. The only person that we see in any state of undress is Venetia, and she's doing it in, like, a way that makes her more powerful some in some ways. And we there's no, like, actual nudity for Venetia other than her reading Harry Potter in the field, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's her yeah. only, like, the only time we see... Like, she's otherwise, like, in risque clothing in yeah. some ways, but... Well, and, like, that scene where they're in the field, right, like, where they're reading... Their reading in the field is like a. It feels like one of the least sexually charged scenes in the entire movie, which mm, is like fascinating because they're all naked. Danielle, you can correct me, but it's like what one associates with like it's a Greek appreciation of the body Absolutely. that doesn't mm. have to be sexualized, right? It can yeah. just appreciate the beauty of all yeah. of these people and of their bodies on display and for other people um, yeah. without the like modern sexualization of that or something. Yeah. Yeah, and they even make a joke out of it, right? When Oliver pulls his pants down, they're like, they, like, clap for him. And so there's, like, <laughs> they, like, take it even a step further, right? Like, on the precisely the point that you're that you're hitting, John. Yeah. To highlight the female gaze thing in particular, this movie is, like, deltoid champion of the year. Until Regan and I saw the preview for Iron Claw the second time we watched this. That's going to take the belt, pun intended, from Saltburn. But, like, until then, Saltburn is 2023's deltoid leader. There's no movie I would like to see less. Oh, that's a lie. I would like to see Night Swim less than Iron Claw, but I have no desire to see Iron Claw. Regan and I made plans to see Iron Claw. I'm sure you did. The was rolling yesterday. I'm like, uh, a movie about wrestling? Like, who cares? Well, my thing is, incredibly hot men. Jerry Allen White, sign me up, man. I don't, for the same, for similar reasons as I am laying out here that this, that Saltburn was disturbing to me because of the anxiety level. John knows this. I cannot watch The Bear. So I, like, haven't Mm. jumped on board the Jeremy Allen White train. 
your That's loss, okay. my friend. I mean, it's upsetting to me though to see in the in Iron Claw like Zach Efron had Oof. like the weird jaw surgery that messed up his face. Yeah, and he just. Oh, he doesn't have it as much anymore. Yeah. But you can see his good soul, his good weird old man soul within, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Seeing the preview for Iron Claw did make me want to rewatch um Neighbors, which then I was listening to The Watch today, or either The Watch or Big Picture, and one of them said that, and I was like, Yes. <laughs> Danielle, are you gonna see Poor Things? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Poor Things is like a little bit more my speed. Mm-hmm. Um I, I like Yorgos Lanthimos. I like that kind of weirdness is, like, more my jam. And also, like, a weird female version of Frankenstein feels interesting. Mm. Yeah. But... That makes sense. You know. Other general hotness shout-outs we want to we wanna Rosamund offer. Pike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, every, like, every time that woman's in a ball gown, like, you know, just the eternal bisexual question of, <laughs> do I want to be her or do I want to be in her? <laughs> I have a controversial take. Okay. Sure. Now I'm forgetting the name of the actor. No. Oh. Richard Grant? Yes. I was You're like, with the Richard Grant I was like, okay. classic Loki. <laughs> 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 I love Richard Grant. That's where I knew him from. Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) Wait, he's also in some. He's also in in like the new stuff. But he's also. I didn't realize. I just. I just realized this recently. He's also in the like newer Star Wars movies. Rise of Skywalker, according to Wikipedia. Oh, Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't remember. It was like the last time I was at my parents. I was watching TBS, and you know TBS always has Star Wars movies on. (laughs) Their full programming slate. Um, Man, I miss TBS. I haven't watched cable in forever. I love being at my parents. They have so many cable channels. Uh, Richard E. Grant is like... An icon? So hot. Now we're doing producer Amy hours. Okay. Relax. Yeah, I think everyone in this movie, extremely attractive. Um, I love Farley and like the... uh, Played by um, Archie... I'm trying to remember how to pronounce his last name. I looked at Medique there. I thank you. Um, looking fine in his like white old fashioned shirt toward the end, like that's also peak female gaze. I think. No, I don't every, know. I think I those are all my hot thoughts. I feel like everyone in this movie is hot. Yeah, <laughs> and on purpose, right? Like that's, and I think this kind of transitions transitions us as well into the next thing we wanted to talk about. That like, not only is the film interested in hot people being hot. But it's also, like, interested in a sensuous, general, aesthetic Mm. lens, right? The cinematography Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. this film is, I think, like, absolutely masterful. Mm -hmm. Um, There are so many incredible shots, most of them having to do either with, like, the use of fog, haze, gloom, shadow, Mm. or Mm -hmm. the use of color. Yeah. and the way that those two things frame the beautiful people that are in this film. Yeah. Like, we, I'm sure we could spend a half hour, we won't just, like, listing the shots <laughs> that we found the most beautiful, but, like, the, for instance, the club scene, scenes at 
the birthday party for yeah. Oliver is some of the most impressive colorful club lighting that I think mm-hmm. you see. It's we have a lot of that. We have something like Industry, which does a lot of that and does a lot of that really well on the TV side. And I thought it was just an incredible use of like blues and reds. And like Regan and I were tracking the use yeah. of the color red throughout the film yesterday. But then there's also scenes where I'm thinking of before the quote unquote vampire scene between Oliver and Venetia as is, is he John's is framed in the one that I find the most repugnant, actually. We're, we're, we're getting there. We're power Whoa. ranking. Um, but, like, as Oliver is framed in full shadow on the steps, like, in the background with Venetia, like, moonlit, quote-unquote, in the foreground, is just, like, a miraculously, like, beautiful shot. I feel like also the the lighting in Oliver's bedroom also, yeah. like, plays mm. into that. But then also the bathroom, and in particular, I'm thinking about the scene where he sort of is, he's spying on... Felix mm-hmm. jerking off right. in the and tub. and everything's bathed in golden light. Exactly, but he's walked through the sort of, like, darkened, but, like, it's, like, reddish because of the molding and the, and the wood on the walls, and he's, like, it, like opens up into this lit bathroom, which is just beautiful. I mean, that makes me think, though, Danielle, like, one of the, and we should shout out, the cinematographer is Linus Sandgren on this Mm -hmm. movie. Um, And one of the things that I like about it is that it is not only one style in the cinematography. Like, this is a film that is just as comfortable with the many, like, dappled golden light scenes, whether they're indoors or outdoors, Mm -hmm. like, going back to the field scene or the many, like, or the scene where, like, they're playing tennis in, you know, full dinner (laughs) dress or whatever. um, As MGMT blares our favorites. And, like, it's comfortable there and does interesting things. It's comfortable in gloom and shadows. It's comfortable in in, like, high saturation color. Like, the there's not just one style throughout the film, but mm-hmm. not yeah. in, like, a scattershot way. Like, in a very intentional and purposeful and, like, aesthetically meaningful way. Yeah, in a way that you might see, like, uh, like a museum mountain exhibit that had a theme but wasn't only in thinking about, like, one artistic style, right? So this is nice. not just, like... Nice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, right, it's not, this is not just, like, a showcase of Monet's works. It's, like, it's, the the theme is excess or beauty or something like that. So you're, like, sort of yeah. seeing all this there's stuff like, come together. There's, Monet in, like, one half of the room, but the other half of the room is, like, Joan Mitchell. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, like, things that might not feel like they make sense together, but somehow when they're placed next to each other, they do make sense in this context. Regan, what stood out for you in terms of the cinematography? Um, I think also, I think I really liked how they made Saltburn into its own character in a lot of ways. Ooh, yeah. And they shoot it in this very lively way, especially yeah. um, the outdoors scenes. I feel like give it such a sense of place. I would also say it's really interesting in how their set interacts with how they shoot it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'm distinctly reminded of, in, of two things. Um, I'm going to tell the funnier one first, I guess. Please. Which is that when I... <laughs> In <laughs> when I um, was living in France, one of my good friends, her host parents were um, essentially what little is left of um, French aristocracy, like long descended from knights, right? Okay. So they had this beautiful manor um, that they all lived in with their twelve kids because they were super fucking Catholic. Um, on the other side of town. And so I went um, a few times to visit them. And they were the Manets. Um, Gilles oh. and Pascaline. Ah, 
beautiful names. Um, wow. And, and then they had a, I just remember, I only got to interact with a few of the kids. There was Joffrey and Marguerite and... Um, of course there's a Marguerite. Yes, Marguerite, we hated Marguerite. I wanted she was 16 a, I wanted, and a pain in the ass. I wanted Dauphine. <laughs> Ooh. Um, the one that we loved the most, um, who was like our cool older French sister, was Sibylline. Ooh, a good That's name. A good Dauphine was my name in French class. The oh teacher my. was like, Danielle is a French name. And I was like, everyone else gets a new name. I want a fucking new name. I was uh, Rosalie, uh, but my host <laughs> family called me Regine. Like Regine. Regine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they also had this interesting TV setup where I think very European, where in there they had a huge grand kind of parlor sitting room situation, library combo. And then again, an, a teeny tiny little TV <laughs> size of a laptop that they all would crowd around to watch like Eurovision or whatever. Um, much like the Cattons do in their library when they're watching Super Bad on the Super TV bad. together. So that brought me back in one way of like this. It's such a thing, and it's such a reminder to like an American audience that this is a very different culture where they're not in taking pop culture in the same ways that the middle class is because that there's no emphasis on the outside world for them. Yeah, mm. and because there are several gates to Saltburn, mm-hmm. right? There's an yeah. outer gate and an inner gate, mm-hmm. right? And like the fact that Oliver took a cab from the train station to Saltburn was mm-hmm. like an affront to them even yeah. though the cab was like I can't let can't get you any closer right. than this. Yeah. The other thing I think is really interesting is that they I think a lot of times when like an American viewer envisions this like grand manor or a castle, they're like, oh it's gonna be huge, like what a enormous bedroom or anything like that. And even they show us like actually the rooms inside Saltburn are very small. So, like, while it's very clear that I think the rooms that are shared by Felix and Oliver are clearly, like, a suite that includes servants' quarters or, like, a bedroom for a valet, which is the one that I think Uh, Oliver clearly is staying in, um, they're actually so small and dark and cramped. And can you imagine, like, growing up in that sort of dimness and darkness? Well, and I think, like, the other thing is, I wasn't thinking small, but I was thinking, like, cluttered or, or claustrophobic yeah. almost. Yeah. And I right. think, But I think, like, that's getting at the same thing. There is there is a, like, a real difference between, like, the being outside and mm-hmm. being in the various spaces outside. Right. And then, like... Or even... Oh, sorry, Danielle. Even was, Felix, like, does brush against being inside frequently. Like, we have yeah. that early scene where he's like, it's too hot in my room, yeah. right? Which is shot similarly and I think is emblematic of how he actually really feels a little bit um, held in by the constraints of having the title. The sort of, dis- the the difference, and I felt like this is as, like, somebody watching this, right? Like, when they're inside, it feels like they're bumping into each other, except mm. the only place that doesn't feel like that is when they're in the, like, dining room. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, like, d- still felt, like, ostentatious in the same way mm-hmm. a lot yes. of the rest of the house felt, but didn't feel cluttered or, like, 
were, like, it was closing in. And I think, like, it's interesting to think about that against, like, the sort of closed-in feeling in so many of these other rooms. And that the dining room is, like, where they retire to after they find Felix's Mm -hmm. body. Love your point precisely because of that scene, Danielle. Because it's in when they go for lunch, which is cold, at the dining room table after, after they find Felix, where those two different, like, modes of spatial existence actually, like, fall into one another because they're still seated around the table and it's shot in such a way that the distance between all of them is emphasized. Yeah. Mm. But we have the the curtains being pulled closed and they can't get the curtains closed because they've never had to close them. And once that happens, it's, the room is bathed in this like artificially red light. Yeah. So that it's as if it's as if it's a, horror movie in which they're like confined in one space so there you get the cloistered feeling there and yet they maintain their physical distance apart from one another and there's something about that that I think like speaks to to whatever extent they're like are bigger ideas about the characters or like deep psyches to these characters that like that scene actually captures a lot of that visually. Which feels like a good segue into the question (laughs) what is this movie about? Is it about anything? Regan, you go first. I think you have, you believe it's about something. I I waffle as to what I think it is about. (laughs) But, But there are some distinct themes here, which is that one, it's definitely about power. And two, like, the second time we watched it, I went for the ideal of what can we learn about the middle class Mm. from this film. And in some ways, it's a really twisted way of, like, okay, this is how we eat the rich and take their resources. Um, Right? But Oliver, that's, like, a false narrative because Oliver just, like, subsumes the entirety of Saltburn and then gets back in with the 99% or, or the 1% or whatever. And is isolated all by himself. Like, admittedly, dancing right. very well in the nude to Murder on the Dance right. Floor, but... You can debate isolated. very well. Yeah, because it's it looks like he even dismissed all the servants. Um, so, yeah, but he can keep up the farce of maybe he's always owned it. But it's interesting to me that he... This, I think, has, like, an interesting commentary on, like, how you can get ahead... Like, are you born ahead or do you take what society can give you to get ahead? Like, so Oliver pretends that he is from, like, the worst set of circumstances. And that is a way for him to, like, get in with the upper group. Yeah. If he were to say to that group, like, oh, you know, my parents are, like, dentists or whatever. Mm -hmm. I know his dad gives distinct dentist vibes to me. (laughs) Um Totally tracks. Out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a million percent. Right. And he's like, oh, yes, and I have two sisters, and I was clever in school. Right. If he were to say that, they would have really brushed him off because there's some sense of like, oh, if they're middle class, like, they'll be fine. But we live in a world with a rapidly disappearing middle class, which, like, is starting to happen in 2002 when the mm. movie is ostensibly set, I think. Yeah. We're like right. post dot com bubble. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Right. Um, so there's like we're seeing this this disappearance. Right. So I thought about it in like a mm-hmm. way of like, is this like him trying to use. But that's like a very, I think, American point of view. And Emerald Fennel wouldn't probably take that point of view. Um Although I I feel like the middle class in England is also disappearing. So maybe yeah, that is I mean, possible. I, I think the like the the British 
I wonder if the like British version of that is is an even like more intense mm-hmm. uh, like reading of that. I think right. that tracks, right? Because that was my thought: is this this how you know we try to get ahead or what we want, what we want? I also think like again, also about power and control. Like I miss the first time we watched the movie with the scene where he first eats breakfast with the Cattons. Um, and he orders his eggs fried over easy. Yeah. And then he immediately rejects them, saying, like, runny eggs make him a bit queasy. At first, I was like, maybe he doesn't actually know how to order eggs. That's how poor he was. Oh. You know? But, like, you like- just, <laughs> like, he's just aping an order. Um, <laughs> Which is possible. Like, I have seen people do it. What was your read the second time through, The second time, I was like, why is this happening? But John pointed out to me that it's a power move. And then I was like, oh, shit, it is. Because then I had to think about my many years as a waitress and how people (laughs) would tell me, I ordered this steak medium rare, and I would repeat it back to them. And then they would still get it and say, actually, I wanted it medium well. Right, 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 right. I think the power and control reading probably appeals to me a bit more than either of the other two in the sense that, like, well, my broader theory about the movie is that I'm not sure it has ideas. Like, I think that, or has, like, deeply committed to ideas ideas. And here I think a contrast with Promising Young Woman is useful. Like, Mm. as much as visually and, like, there are elements of this where, like, it's, like, the perfect follow-up to Promising Young Woman, it makes a lot of sense that these are Emerald Fennell's first two films. There's actually fewer ideas and more, like, no ambition, just vibes, but the best vibes in this one. And, like, for me, that's fine. Like, I'm not demanding that there be the ideas if there's, like, some aesthetic inventiveness, if there's some, like, W UTF debauchery and just absurdity that's built into it. Um, as you both know, that that's that's that that'll work on me a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> I think the class reading is there, yeah, because it's like the as you were pointing out, Regan. It's the what are the actual costs of like ascending to a higher class or the highest class, and like Oliver is at least thinks that like what he does is is what that is, and then simultaneously there's like the eat the the eat the rich part, and simultaneously the well, the lower class or middle class is useful only as, like, a discardable toy or plaything to the Cattons um, that is persisting. But, like, I'm actually not sure that the film is that interested in the class question. But I don't know. But I think the power and control question is obviously central to it. I think the power and control question is central. The class reading, I think, is interesting. But, like, I don't think that this movie is about anything. And I'm not content with just vibes. Like, I think, like, of They the- have to be impressive vibes. No, I, like... I'm trying to think of, like, what thing... What, like, movie or TV show I'm, like fine with just vibes harry styles aside like and and like big big asterisk biggest but i also don't think like but I'm, also it's like a, as like a medium music is definitely meant for just vibes like yeah i also like fair. i don't think that my enjoyment of harry styles is contingent on the vibes like that's mm. not like that's just not how i enjoy music being at the concerts that's a different thing but like the the music itself for me is not about the vibes and so like I would be hard to find it would t- probably take me a while to to think through like the last thing that I like enjoyed purely because of the vibes. Um it's just like not how I enjoy things. So like 
I'm not sure that this movie is about anything except, like, staging these incredibly... I don't even want to say absurd, because this didn't... It it actually didn't feel absurd. I think... Strong disagree there, but we'll get into it. Yeah, because... But I think, like, what... But again, like, what constitutes absurd for me and what constitutes absurd for you, I think, are just different things. They literally have a conversation about, like... What font did you choose for the headstone? Like, that's pure absurdist comedy gold. Okay. In in the way that it's filmed in that moment, that's just, like, that's, like, definitionally absurdist. Sure, but, like, I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> I think the, the like, the, the strongest message in the movie, yes, is about power. I think they're, like, it's interesting. It, you can read it to find the class stuff. I think you could also read it to find... Like, I think there's, like, a queer reading of this movie, right? Like, I think there's, like, and, like, like we did in the beginning, you can sort of think through it in terms of the female gaze. Like, this movie offers itself for, like, all of these different modes of interpretation and reading. And, but, like, I don't know that it's, like, actually about anything. Regan, you mentioned this very briefly at the beginning. Do you want to expound more upon, like, this film? This is a queer film? I mean, okay, so... I feel like it's queer in that, like, the read is always, like, Oliver's in love with him. And he even opens up narrating to Comatose Elspeth about how, like, everyone thought he was in love with um, Felix. Felix. But he definitely is for a while, even if he's just only in love with the idea of Felix. Mm -hmm. Though he claims to know Felix on a deeper level than, like, the girls in his life know them. And he wants to protect them from women, right? I think there is a queer reading to it. But, like, this is, like, the lushness of this film, which I think is my main takeaway from it, is that there's so much you can pull out of it because it's, like, verdant and fertile, um, if you will. I love these ver- I love these <laughs> nouns you're using here. Oh, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> verdant is definitely an adjective. Yeah, and so is fertile, but that's fine. And so is fertile. We'll take wow. it. Um <laughs> The funny part about this is John is, like, at least in the partnership between me and John, like, John is the grammatical person. <laughs> oh, interesting. And here I am, the writing teacher who's like, fuck grammar. But but I, I feel like you're, you're like, in the, you're, like, in the fog of Saltburn. And so we'll allow it. We'll allow, <laughs> like. I'm just on as many drugs as they are. Like, there come on. There you go. There <laughs> you go. Give me a pass. <laughs> um, poor, yes, poor dear Pamela. Poor dear John. Um, Pamela. <laughs> Uh, but a wild I think, character. I don't know because <laughs> toward out. the end, like you can tell, like especially come like the scene, like there's a very clear switch where it's like he no longer loves them and thinks of them as good, generous people who are hosting him, and he wants to become one of them. He clearly hates them by the time that he gets to that scene with the three mirrors. I, I yeah. think he hates and them moves from the beginning, but like I think he hates them from the beginning. Uh, yeah, I think, Regan, he, I, dis, I think he's idealistic in the beginning. Yeah, I mean, so the, this is, I think, a question that made a lot more sense to me the second time through than the first. So it's a little bit unfair to put Danielle on the spot here. But, like, fine. at mm-hmm. what point in the arc does Oliver consciously turn to murder plot? Vampire scene. That's my call. Oh, interesting. I think it, I think it comes later than that, actually. Oh, I mean, I my sense of it is that like he hates them from the beginning, but it turns to murder like after he realizes that he can get Farley out of the house. Like mm. when he realizes he has that power, 
that's when I think it turns to murder. But Fair. I think I mean, he there's... hates them from the from like the beginning, which I think you don't is only revealed in that like the revelation scene, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I think. I don't think he hates Felix until there. I don't think he hates Felix until he feels like Felix has betrayed him by finding out his secret and then calling his like making him accountable to that. Like, I think he still idealized loves Felix to varying extents, to be sure. But like, I think that that's the root like emotional orientation he has towards Felix Basically until until that scene. And like Regan and I had this moment in the theater yesterday that there's a point at which um Oliver, like Barry Hugan plays this beautifully, where like Oliver has this like certain like look up with his head where it's mm-hmm. like this is the birth of the murderer scene, and it actually comes later than you think. Yeah. And so like I and so I think that like and now I so I say that and then to push a little bit in the other direction. This, a second viewing of this, like, revealed how capable of cruelty and, like, instrumentality Oliver is at an earlier point. Like, yeah. With his, like, he's never really friends with this, like, nerdy math guy at Oxford. Yeah. But just, like, the coldness that he's capable of with that person, that really hit for me the second time around. Well, that, and then I would also add to that the, like, when he's hooking up with the girl who had been, like, hooking up with Felix, and he says, and she's like, do you think it'll bother him? And and he's like, I don't even think he'll notice. Like, which is, like, only a couple of scenes later. Like, I think yeah. that's a similar, like, kind, kind of cruelty. I guess, like, what I would say is that I don't think that him hating Felix, like, precludes him loving Felix. Uh, like, mm. I, like, right, so I think, like... Some, uh, is this an Aristonatos moment, Daniel? <laughs> would you say? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it is a, like, like, abundance, Christina Beltran, abundance of emotions, abundance of affects moment, where I think, like, those things can be... He can be driven by the general hatred of the rich. This sort of goes back a little bit to, to Regan, your, like class reading of it, I think he can be, like, driven either by a hatred of the rich or a hatred of, like, the the privilege or the popularity or whatever it is that Felix represents, like, in all of that, and also, like, deeply, like, in love with, like, the idea of Felix wanting to be him, et cetera, et cetera. I think, like, you can mm-hmm. hold those things together. Yeah. I No, I think that's a good call of, like, he wants to be Felix less than he's, like, actually in love with Felix. Because by the time, like, we get to the midpoint of the movie, that's where I think the queer reading ends. Because, like, he is then moving from his obsession with Felix to an obsession with the power Felix holds. Or even Felix's parents. How close or how far are, mm-hmm. like, desire and disgust to one another? Yeah. Um, like, even, like, in, like, a Freudian sense, like, we could even do that way. And, like, maybe they're actually not so far. So I think that I think that that's all, like, consistent with the that Oliver can both love and hate or love and despise or yeah. love and seek the power that Felix has. Like, that those, uh, that the, the, he can both and all of those. Yeah. Um, Regan, what did you think about the, like, framing device in general and then like the way the framing device gets revealed at the end i i'm okay with the framing device because my first read on it as you know was i thought at first he was going to be talking to a therapist and that was what the reveal was going to be 
was he was either talking to a therapist or, or maybe a lawyer. Oh, I yeah. thought lawyer. lawyer was. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. I thought lawyer. Or okay. police officer, like interrogation or something. Yeah, I thought it was not going to be Elspeth, right? I yeah, because I also didn't know she was till later in the movie. Well, that was like that was the part of the reveal that was surprising to me that that's who he's talking to. Mm. And they shoot it the like jump cut to her with the tube. Yeah, is like one of the genuine shock moments of right. of the film because it's <laughs> interesting to me also that we get like this sudden time skip in a way that I actually think is very masterful and shows how much he's imbibed this upper class thing because like clearly we get a shot of kind of like late in twenty twenty. Um, or 2021, maybe, because we see a lot of, like, the service workers they're interacting with with masks on. But yep. neither of them have masks on. Yeah. And presumably, Elspeth caught COVID, and it was not good. At least that's my read. I thought it was, like, a Munchausen by proxy murder situation was yeah, my read. Yeah, I think read. he poisoned her. Yeah. Maybe both. I'm, and, and, I'm not and sure. And Quasi admits to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. he says some version of like uh, it's like some version of like I did this to you or something like that. Like right, before yeah, he, he just say, like, rips the respirator <laughs> tube out. Which, yeah. Oh my god! That, which that John John flinched both times. Tori and I Hardcore. I saw it with my little sister Tori and like which was itself like a hilarious experience, but. I, like, grabbed onto her and was like, no, Tor, no, no, no. And she was, like, grabbing onto me and, like, no, no, no. And then it happened and I was like, blah. There are some rough scenes in this. Like, everyone talks about the bathroom drain scene, but the vampire scene and the respirator scene, way worse. I think Way worse. Well, we'll get to, we'll get to, we'll, we'll get, get to a ranking. Yeah, yeah, we're power ranking soon. Yeah. Ugh. Right. Gross. Um. But I just feel like there's a lot about this movie that, like, begs to question, like, the idea of, like, how you assert dominance over everybody. And, of course, he goes for that sort of, yeah, I guess Munchausen by proxy also makes sense now that I'm really thinking about it. But, like, the frame, it's just so interesting that he, it's framed in such an interesting way of he's just taking and taking privilege and, like, asserting kind of all the money he's also presumably gotten from Sir Richard. Mm Mm-hmm. As well, exactly. um, and say if I'm not wearing a mask in public when he probably should be. <laughs> but anyways, I I'm okay with the framing device because I think it just sets such interesting points up because it's also so long. It's not like we get Oliver's narration throughout the entire film. Like yeah. when he is at Saltburn in the summer of 2002, presumably. You know, we're just seeing things as he experiences them. And then when we go back to the narration, it gives, like, more context. But I think we have to have that initial one set up because when he talks about, like, well, a lot of people thought I was in love with him. And then we get all these shots of, like, that are loving. Yeah. Right? And it helps set up kind of what this dynamic is going to be. I think that it's summer of 2006, though. I think that's, like, yeah. Because because they say, welcome to that class of 2006. Well, but I think, like, when he goes to Saltburn is, like, when he's, like, done. I was mm-hmm. I had the same question, and it actually gets answered by Venetia at one point. Oh. She says, you've only known Felix for, what, six months? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. So okay. it's like summer 2003. Yeah, is, there we I think, go. Okay. That makes sense. It makes the super bad of it all even more annoying, though, because... Oh, this, well, is, and they're not also a, this reading, is not... The, yeah, this is... It's just giving the vibe of the mid-early 2000s, because yeah, like, they're also reading on. the seventh Harry Potter book, which didn't come out until 2007. This is why I think it has to be, like... It has to be later. It, 
It's not. Or it though. doesn't matter. It matters. Yeah. Danielle, it matters turning, Sean, to me. Danielle turning into Sean Fennessy for this point is is quite the surprising it, heel turn. It matters to me because, like, I don't know, vibes in 2003 are different than vibes in 2007. <laughs> I was in college in one and not in college in the other. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle Hanley's vibes were different. Is yeah. What you're telling us. Okay. Yeah. Fair. I mean, like, listen, the the like super bad point bothered me when I saw the movie because I was like whatever time period whatever time zone whatever we're in this is not correct and those are the kinds of details that like really take me out of it um like I but you know I like also recognize that I like wasn't super here for this movie and so like it was going to be taken out of it I really don't care that, like, one of the block party songs that they play came out, like, a year later than it's said in the film. Like, don't at me. That's the, I, why would we care about that? I don't understand. I know, but the. It's not a documentary. The funny part of it, though, John, is, like, if this were a movie you didn't like, you would really care about it. That might be true. It's a million percent true. (laughs) It's a million percent true because, like, it is one of the things we use to like pinpoint the dates on the Americans. Is like, oh, like, what is? Well, because, but, but that's, but that's actually not the best example because the American its meticulousness is part of the like the project of the show, and like meticulous is not the project of Saltburn. I would argue that like meticulous attention to detail is like with regard to the fashion, with regard to a lot of the music, like w- like there are, like yes. so, so much you of make the aste- artistic choices to make that this, more effective. This is <laughs> you you cannot tell me that there wasn't a movie that existed in two thousand three that would have captured the same aesthetic, the same vibes. As at, like, like put the Hangover on. Like there are so many choices, like Super Bad, two thousand six or seven or eight. I, okay, but is there a film <laughs> this is that not, captures no, I, like? <laughs> is there a film that captures that? The only other film I could think of that would capture the two thousands that point in time better than Super Bad is Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, Napoleon Dynamite would have been a great option, but like what I'm saying is that if this movie is supposed to be set in two thousand three, then like. You're not capturing the early 2000s vibes if you're not, if like the movie is released in a totally different moment. It's not a totally different moment, though. I mean, that's it absolutely, like, it absolutely is. And like, I think the super bad choice is presumably on purpose because that's a show about, or you know, a film that's like about imposters, like about, about being an imposter, like changing one's identity and like using it as a tool of like sex and power. So like it actually I think works thematically as well. Like so I think it's God. I think it's a great choice. That is like the most obnoxious analysis you have ever had about anything. Yeah, well what, you pushed me you pushed me to it. What makes it worse is <laughs> I, I didn't want to do it. What makes I didn't want to do what it. What makes it worse is I think that you're right on that point. Thank but you. like Thank you. I, like there's so much other attention to detail that this feels like a real like it's just frustrating. But it's attention to different kinds of detail, right? Like I don't I don't think so. Okay, fair. Like, that's fair. it. Like, I don't think so. Yeah, and again, I, I raise the point again that if you didn't like this movie, you would have a 20-minute rant about this. I actually don't think that's true, but, like, you can believe that. Um. Okay. <laughs> I feel like when John doesn't like things, he's just like, nope, we're not talking about it. No, it's like, I'm just, nope, this is bad. Like, I just... <laughs> Listen, as someone, I'm not trying to, as someone to who get at... deeply loves John... 
but also did like 12 episodes of sure of Marvel that John hated from the beginning like not totally true okay Mo- Someone true. moon knight you definitely hated from the beginning fair and yes. loki you hated Correct. from like episode 2 <laughs> okay fair <laughs> And, like, I think that there were, like, some parts of Loki that maybe you didn't hate as much. But, like, it's just, like, I'm just trying to think about if this were, if this were in, like, a Loki or a Moon Knight type of show. And this, like, what feels to me like a glaring, like, I'll take your point that, like, the, the, like, thematically the movie works. And, like, and, and I wasn't thinking about it. Like, that's, I'll take that point. Like, but if... If it was just something, like, that made the timeline, like, shift in a way that felt frustrating, you it would bother you. And, like, I think it's wild. I, like, strongly contest that it's a glaring omission to, like, have Superbad come out two years too early. Really? Who cares? I think it's, like, like I just, I just four don't years understand. too early, though. It would, I, I don't, I still don't care. Like, I just, I just don't think it matters at all to what the film is trying to do. Well, Except think- that it... Like, syncs thematically. And I also, I don't want to, like, be on, I try to be, trying to be team neutral, but here. <laughs> you can be on a side. Movie, I'm, I'm on John's side I in know. this debate, Danielle, <laughs> because. Fine. You like also, the movie. Well, yes, I like the movie, but it's not without its flaws, for sure. I think it's more that they are trying to harken back to a time where we, it's like a movie very much marketed and meant for millennials. Like, I think, and so it's trying to harken us back to that t- that time where things were quote unquote simpler, right? Like where we did not have supercomputers in our pockets every day. Yeah, <laughs> for yeah. example, right? And so by seeing like super bad, and they're reading Harry Potter and the Livestrong bracelets and Livestrong. <laughs> I know. Um, I also have a distinct memory of a girl I went to school with named Nicole who would wear Livestrong bracelets from wrist to elbow. Wild every day, every day. <laughs> That's her neck rate for another key figure of the odds, Lance Armstrong. Okay, um, <laughs> and acting talk. Uh, let's remember some. Let's remember some odds. Um, I mean, I think everyone in this is like basically just acting. Like the acting's just good across the board. It's like no one seems out of joint with their character is written. Everyone seems mm-hmm. to be adding a little something yeah. to like the dialogue that they're given. Um, you know, like, I think that, like, Barry Keoghan and Rosamund Pike, like, I'll go with the full consensus that, like, those are the two most impressive, like, pieces of acting um, in the cast. Yeah, I also, yeah. I was, like, impressed by Jacob Elordi because this feels a little bit like he's both playing two type and playing against type, right? Like, they're, that mm-hmm. he's, like, trying to have a little bit, it's, it's a similar, like, pretty boy uh, with maybe a, a dash of darkness but not as dark as the Euphoria version. But then also that there's, like, there is something about the scene where he has, like, called Ollie's mom and, like, then is, and this is Oliver's birthday and he's, like, bringing him to the house. Like, there was something about that scene that I was like, oh, this feels like a a slightly different mode. And I was just impressed by Jacob Elordi. Well, and Jacob Elordi is also trying really hard to move past the teen heartthrob stuff. (laughs) Like... Both, in, but he's playing. Weird but choice he knows, to do that. right? But he, well, here's the thing: is I too, if I were in the kissing booth, one, two, and three, I also would be a little embarrassed. Listen, those movies are dumb. 
Here's like what I love about this though. I was just talking about the kissing booth with my little sister earlier today because Taylor Zakar Perez is also in Kissing Booth two and three, and he's just very hot. Except that like not as hot in the kissing booth as he is in Red White and Royal Blue. <laughs> oh man. Um, so, but k- yeah, kissing booth but he's also large. moving to things that are going to be more taken seriously. Like when he's he was in the Priscilla biopic or whatever. Right, Saltburn. He's he's making career moves, right? And he's good in like I thought that his Elvis was impressive and like I still have to see Priscilla. I, I think like you'll like it. Yeah. I think you'll like it. That's another movie where there's just like really good acting and also like yeah. very aesthetically like sumptuous. Yeah, mm. it's a Sofia Coppola yeah. joints. So. Yeah. Listen. Richard E. Grant. I don't know if he has an E, but I have assigned him one. He does. You're correct. You got it. Amazing. Yeah. I just love him. He just, no, he's I felt a like he was character. just like chewing the, like the scenery. Like he's just he's so like good. He's so delightful. Oh, totally. <laughs> like, I love, I totally. love Sir James. Which makes his like yelling in yeah. the scene. Right. That much more disconcerting. After death. Yes. Like much more to the point because he's played him as like so daft up to that point. Agree. Agree. He loves loves his suit of armor. Yes. The suit of armor <laughs> might have been my favorite, like, callback joke. Like, when he's actually wearing it, I was like, this makes my whole, this makes the seeing the movie worth it. And done. Power ranking our most debaucherous or sicko mode scenes. So what what's in consideration here? There's the three obvious ones. We have the bathwater scene. Mm-hmm. We have the vampire scene. Mm-hmm. We have the, is he really fucking a grave scene? Mm-hmm. And we have the pulling the two out of uh, Elspeth's mouth scene, right? The, are those do anything else that we are power ranking? Honestly, I think I'm also thinking about at the very end when they're starting when it's like clear that they, it's uh, we're looking at Elspeth's coffin and you see Oliver like look around to to check and see who is like if people have left. I would argue that is also sick because that like implies <laughs> he's waiting for privacy so he can maybe fuck a corpse. Or also maybe he's <laughs> fucked all four of their graves. Okay, I did have this question <laughs> yesterday. It was like, did he fuck other graves? So I'm glad did. that Regan has raised this to matter of debate. Danielle, your thoughts. I didn't even see that scene because I went to the bathroom <laughs> during like that part of it. So Yeah, so we're going like you gotta rank four to one. Yeah. One is like your most debaucherous, yeah. most hell yeah scene. That's metal. Okay. Well Go for I, it, Danielle. I, most debaucherous and hell yeah, that's metal don't happen together for me. <laughs> so we'll just go with most debaucherous. I think for me, it's like the bathtub scene is number four. Pulling the tube out is three. The grave scene is two. And the vampire scene is one. Wonderful. Regan. I would actually, I think I agree fully with Danielle. Like, no notes. Amazing. Eight and left, gonna, no crumbs. That's my ranking. <laughs> I'm going to join you all in four and three okay. by giving new meaning to drinking their bathwater scene. Like, was the Ooh. least debaucherous of our power ranking debaucherous scenes. Against it's more that the, it's like, just public really discourse. gross. Yeah. yeah. Uh, agreed. And also, yeah. The, I also, like, I don't care if you've jerked off or not in a bathtub. I don't want anybody licking any bathtubs ever. <laughs> like, right. Uh, like, this. Do you, like, I, as someone who, like, my roommate and I shed a lot of hair. Same. I never want to get anywhere near the bathtub drain in my oh, own house. No. Just to clean it. Same. And, but, but also just, like, 
I don't know. I just feel like the the bottom of a bathtub is not clean. Don't lick it. <laughs> but, like, to be clear, it's an incredible scene. Barry Keoghan acts the fuck oh, out of that scene. Fully agree. Like, beautifully yeah. fully done agree. by him. Like, great close-ups. Like, so. falls yes, to his four. knees, face yeah. flat on the floor. He's, yeah. 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 Number three, I'm with you all on um, pulling the two out of Elspeth's mouth. And then I reverse the two and the one. So I put the vampire scene at two and the grave fucking at the most. Hell yeah, that's metal. This is the best film I've ever seen in my life. Number one spot. I told John this, John, already. I turned to my little sister and I was like, I think we're about to have an American Pie situation here. Tori was like, no. And then it happened and both of us are like, oh my God. That's when I knew this was a masterpiece. Whoa. That's when I turned to Regan and I was like, I can't believe this is happening and I love it so much. The first time. <sighs> and, and the second time. I was like, this is like, I don't know. I, yeah, I feel like the fucking the grave thing, it's, I don't know. It's like almost to me, I was reading it as like, this is his last chance to maybe get what he originally wanted, which was maybe to have some semblance of affection with Oliver that oh. felt more than just shallow. Which is why I don't always, I don't, it's not number one for me. Yeah. I, for me, it's like the absence of other bodies, like physically Mm. in the scene, just made it like less debaucherous, even though it is like an incredibly fucked up moment. Yeah. And there's something that just like the vampire scene. Yeah, the vampire (laughs) scene, it's, oh God, it's so uncomfortable. Yeah, I can't. (laughs) Because I also feel like if I were sitting there in that moment, like one, she's, by saying like, it's not a good time of the month, she's trying to tell him, no, don't, one. Correct. Absolutely. Right, that's like the first first thing, and then she then it continues on as is, like whatever. But it's also like when I don't know, and it's just like the lack of like I used to work with um, a young scholar who studied like the rhetoric of menstruation, mm-hmm. but like it's such a moment of like, oh, how do I want to put it without seeming like an awful person? Um, let me like rub this like waste all over you in some ways. Yeah, you know? yeah. That- so I was trying to think about that because, like, so there are, right, there are these, like, French feminists, like, who are thinking a lot about menstruation as, like, waste mm-hmm. and, like, the abject and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, oh, is, am I, like, am I letting my, like, sheer disgust over this moment, like, blind me from, like, a potentially, like, more generous feminist reading? And I think, like, maybe, but the... The, the fact that she's trying to use her period to say no makes it mm-hmm. feel like the feminist reading is, like, maybe not there. I And see, that would be my—that's my, my that's my sense of it, is that there, there cannot be a feminist reading. Like, this is not empowering period sex. No. Because it's not consensual. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, it's not. Because otherwise, I would say, like— And also, another thing you just shouldn't be putting in your mouth, frankly— <laughs> <laughs> it's not and safe it's, sex. This is poor sex education not. of the early aughts, everybody. True. All of what you, both of you just said is like a thousand percent on point. And I'll just add that like is a scene, and I think that speaks to the fact that like both of us or all three of us like thought of these two as the most like fucked up scenes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that there's just like a level of transgressiveness and power play that's happening. Mm-hmm. And that the film is like 
treating like the live wire that it is that is enhanced by the way the scene is shot and is acted and is lit um and mm-hmm. is like placed narratively in the structure of the film that's, that's all i would add yeah, yeah. i like that i mean yeah because he's also just literally rubbing it in her face that hey. she has said and no. then and then yeah. on his own face too right yeah. like we get that incredible shot of from on like bathtub. in the bath in under the bathtub. where it's like pans up to like his face being covered in her blood yeah. Woof. Gross. <laughs> Debaucherous. John's what? like metal. What a fucking movie. <laughs> what a film. <laughs> Jesus Christ. All right, what's All next? Right. Realness nostalgia for the aughts. So why don't we just like go around one by one and just shout out some of our favorite aughts things that happened. Regan, as our <laughs> less, least frequent host, you get to go first. The styling like yeah. of, the, of the clothes, for sure. Um, are we just going to go round table one by one, or can I do my list? Let's go one by one. Okay. So I would, yeah, I would say the styling, like very Abercrombie and Fitch, very Hollister, very J. Crew. I'm into it. Yeah, just to like add on to that, like uh, Abercrombie and Fitch, Hollister, J. Crew, like pop collars, multiple mm-hmm. layers of shirts, but also the like juicy couture, uh, like velour right. sweatsuits, the stacks of bracelets, <laughs> yeah. also, yep. like and the, <laughs> the like the hair, all the, all the girls have like bleach highlights in their hair which was also like very early aughts yeah that's true venetia's hair is very particularly Mm -hmm. like early aughts her age yeah this woman hair yeah yeah john what about you well, I, I'll just, like, agree. It's um, So we all said, like, what what are the malls that this movie yeah. reminds us of? And so, like, it's it's giving Park Meadows Mall in Lone Tree, Colorado to me. <laughs> to, like, add on. I mean, it's, uh, I, of course, will, like, go with the music. And so we get, obviously, the murder on the dance floor scene at the end, which we should probably talk about as well. Arguably, that goes in the power ranking list somewhere, too. We get Arcade Fire. We get MGMT. We get Block Party. Like, we have all of these bands. I appreciate the at some point those are diegetic right Mm -hmm. so like block party and arcade fire are diegetic block party then becomes extra diegetic and obviously mgmt is just like pure extra diegetic we're like we're rolling we're fucked up we're like at saltburn for the summer Mm -hmm. i loved it i didn't recognize any of the music besides murder on the dance floor that's like the only john and i were singing like the whole time I told John this, like, when we talked about the movie after I had seen it, I was like, I don't know that I've ever, like, heard an MGMT song. John's like, what were you listening to in the early aughts? And I was like, Dashboard Confessional and Jack Johnson. Mm, I also was listening to those. Um, But were you not also, I don't know, but also because I'm, you know, younger than both of you, like... I think I came into that, especially MGMT. Like, I didn't listen to an MGMT song until I was actually probably a first uh, freshman in college. I'm, like, I'm a little bit older than you guys. And so, like, I was the class of 2006. So, like, mm-hmm. this would have been music, I guess, that I should have been listening to. But, like, I wasn't listening to the radio. <laughs> but also, like, I think that there, none of that stuff was really on the radio, though. Uh, True. It would, yeah. it would have to be the in most the weirdest of radio because like that was there's such a d- division I think amongst millennials based on the music that they feel comfortable with like the things mm. that were on the radio would not necessarily be how I would align myself musically in the 2000s. I just definitely was not listening to any of this music and I like hadn't heard any of it like I, I guess like a lot of the music in this felt familiar-ish to me like as a vibe, but, like, I mm-hmm. could not recognize any songs. Yeah. It does strike me that, like, 
this film works on all of us as millennials, but three different micro generations of millennials, yeah. right? Yeah. So like Daniela is almost forty. I'm thirty six. Will be thirty seven in February. Regan is thirty and will be thirty one soon. So mm-hmm. yeah. Listen, my birthday is in uh, five days. <laughs> yeah. Actually, your bir- I think we're releasing this on your birthday. What a- This is my birthday present to you, Daniel. I don't want I'm going to edit this and post <laughs> it on your birthday. don't want to spend two hours talking to me. No, I, I mean, it would I be do. better if it were about It would be better Marvel if it were about something. something that I liked. <laughs> okay. We can, you can to conjure be- an additional birthday oh, gift we, for you. we should. Um, I'm just not used to being the one that doesn't like something. And so I don't quite know how to be in this space. I feel no. very comfortable in As, that space. I know. You know but it's okay. <laughs> we, can do, we can all get through it because one day, eventually, the pod will talk about Taylor Swift and then I'll be the hater. I mean, I don't ever feel the need to do a pod on Taylor Swift. And I feel like John would join you in hating. (laughs) No, no. Like, I have, like, very mid-feelings about Taylor Swift. Like, like Folklore is a great album, but, like, don't have strong opinions. Other than, like, there are no ethical billionaires. Um, Other 2000 shout-outs for me. I'll mention the one that is important that I still grapple with all the time, as John knows. Is they're all reading the seventh Harry Potter book. And that was such a phenomenon. And... I was, um, just for the pod audience, I'm extremely anti-JK Rowling's stance on most yeah. everything these days. Same. Correct. Wow, how the mighty have fallen. Um, what a jerk. What a horrible person. Fuck you, Joe. Um, but, like, I, that was a really, right, really important series that, like, Harry Potter is yeah. the reason why I have two degrees in English at this point. Listen, I remember I was working as a paralegal at a law firm when the when the seventh book came out, and I remember taking off work that day and going and reading in Sheep's Meadow in Central Park, mm-hmm. and, like, so many people were reading the book the day it came oh. out. I went to a midnight release, dressed up in a Hogwarts student <laughs> costume, um, got the book, screamed, and ran down Mitchell Street in Petoskey, Michigan, so excited. Amazing. And then I stayed up all night. I... Uh, my friends and I, I think I got home. My friend's mom dropped me off probably at 1 o'clock maybe, you know, not super late in the night. And I stayed up until 8 a.m. Fin- to finish the whole book. I love that. In one go. John, do you have any, like, you have on the list here vibes, so I want to open the floor to you to, like, talk about vibes. <laughs> I feel like that's all we've been talking about the whole time. This is a film, and Regan made this point already, that, like, is going to most resonate with you, even resonate with the hater you, uh, i.e. Danielle, like, if you're a millennial, because, like, Emerald Fennell is, I think, like, your age, Danielle, right? She's 39. This is such a fine, perfectly fine-tuned to the millennial film. Um, and, like, I'm here for that, generally. It's really interesting. So, in a minute, we're gonna, in a, in a few minutes, we'll maybe, we'll talk about um, the double features with this movie. And I hadn't been thinking about this. I'm gonna jump the gun and then maybe we'll... No, 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 you're not allowed to. <laughs> you gotta save it. Because I almost jumped the gun, like, 20 minutes ago and decided I had to save it. <laughs> okay. We can return. It can be all about vibes all the time. What is this podcast if not about the vibes? It's only about fashion. Fashion corner. Regan, this was something you particularly wanted to make sure we we had. Um, I just think it's like very interesting. Like, so they just the way that they the costuming. This costumer like is a genius. Agree. Um, I don't know who it is. I'll Um, look it up. Go for it. So whoever you are, like right up there with like. Ruth Carter in Black Panther, which is also genius costuming, yeah. but in a different way. I really feel um, that this is just emblematic of how things are 
and you can learn a lot about people through how they're costumed, obviously. But, like, we see, when we first meet Oliver, he's so um, buttoned up and, like, has his glasses on, and then he ditches them. Maybe he's going through things blind. I don't know. But he gradually loosens up a lot. I also think it's really interesting that... um, you know, they do all this sort of wrinkled, um, disheveled clothes. Yeah. Like, kind of like Chris Evans' costuming of having these high-quality clothes that he doesn't <laughs> take care of. Um, what a great reference. You know, in uh, Knives <laughs> Out. Um, feel, that's always Felix, like, in the wrinkled button-down. And, like, he's always barefoot and showing how comfortable he is in the world. Versus Oliver is never comfortable, right? Yeah. Um, I think a really interesting um, choice to make Farley dress up as the ass in the Midsummer's Night Dream. Yeah. Ugh. All the costumes party. in that, and all the costumes in the party sequence are like just one. They're like so, they're so two thousand. Yeah, but so good. Exactly. Exactly. Like I wish I could have been at that party. You know, a hundred stoned out of my mind, <laughs> dancing to MGMT and M eighty three. I would have been like hanging out in the labyrinth. I would have been like, ooh, a labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> so the costume designer is Sophie Canale, um, who but probably most notable for the purposes of Saltburn was the costume designer in the 2022 season of Bridgerton. I thought you were going to say mm. on the OC that like in my brain is like <laughs> that's I really thought you were going to be like most notable for Saltburn like on the OC because that feels like the total vibe yeah. of, of the costumes here. It's true. Yeah. So, but that makes sense to me because that the season two of Bridgerton is also like really lush, emblematic costuming. Agree that helps you read and understand a lot about characters. Jonathan Bailey, very very female gaze, like the Jonathan Bailey wet shirt scene on Mr. Darcy in the miniseries. I can't. It's too good. There's so many versions of that shirt because they wanted it to become transparent in just the right way. I love it. There were so many prototypes for that shirt. I love it so Production much. Production designed by Susie Davies, we should say, um, since we shouted that out earlier. Also well. makes sense. Um, so one thing that you said, Regan, that I realized we didn't talk about is, like, Farley as a character. Because, like, one thing I think this film is correctly, like, dinged on is that, like, it doesn't, like, the way it handles race is weird. Just, like, bad vibes. Right. Well, and also just emblematic of how race is handled in the uh, time period. Well, and I yep. would also say, like, how, like, race is handled and it feels like bungled in relation to class in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, not yeah. done well, but it feels like not, like, it's a misstep in a really particular way that isn't a surprising misstep, I guess, is what I... Yeah. Well, and also yeah. I think it's a misstep to show some things. Like, there, it's purposely very uncomfortable for him to show that flaw. I think the film just, like, doesn't... This is where, like, it not having a lot to say, I think, actually hurts six. Like, I just don't think it was something that they thought about particularly. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I think it's, like, again, it's, like, emblematic of, like, how race is treated and not treated, like, more broadly yeah. in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, next segment, which is, what is the best double feature with this movie? And we're disallowing the two most obvious double features. So you can't say Promising Young Woman, because that's clearly would be a great double feature. And you can't say Talented Mr. Ripley, which is what this film was, like, held up against by uh, el- elder, elder, elder than Daniel Millennials and, like, Gen Xers. <laughs> I'm, like, almost the oldest millennial, but I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, so... <laughs> 
on like millennial vibes, I would I would put it with Barbie because I think that also taps into a, a very specific kind of nostalgia. Um, Greta Gerwig is also my age, like, and John and I saw Barbie together. And if you are a listener of this podcast, you know, and we talked about it, right? But I think like elder millennial vibes is if like that's the thing you're picking up from this movie, then like the double feature with Barbie, I think, is an interesting one. I love that, and actually, this is a this is a Danielle and I. Even though Danielle is a hater here, and Hugely. I'm a hater elsewhere, like our shared brain. Because my like when you said, "Oh, I have an idea here," based on the conversation, I thought you were going to say, Barbie. "Oh, that's really so, funny." Like, congratulations to us, <laughs> nice. Regan. What's your double feature? You and I have also discussed Barbie in public, right? Um, and I still haven't listened to your guys' episode on Barbie, but maybe that's what I'll do when I fall asleep tonight. Because that's what I do is I listen sometimes to episodes of not quite great books. To I listen sleep. to your to Young Pope. <laughs> yeah, I usually listen to the Young Pope ones because John will go off on a tangent and then I'll fall asleep, which doesn't really, which is why John doesn't lecture for his primary mode of lesson planning. Same. <laughs> I'm not True. saying you're boring, John. You just know. I don't feel bad. Yeah. No. Um, Decidedly it's just not very boring. <laughs> it's not boring. It's just sometimes. very soothing. John is my yeah. friend that I feel most calm around. Thank you. Usually. Sometimes I'm, I'm really not mad. feeling then, calm on this podcast, but I generally agree clearly. with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so two things are coming to mind. So one, and this is just going on guts and vibes alone. Really, almost anything of the th- I've only seen two Yorgos Lanthimos films. Mm-hmm. So I would say The Favorite or The Lobster. Yeah. But also maybe Poor Things would go well with this in the future. We'll see. Um, remains to be seen. My other thought for a double feature for this would actually be Jennifer's body. Oh, Ooh, I like that one. That's a good yeah. one. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Like Do you want to say so yeah, say more push, about it's that. It's like I'm pushing more cuz like there's a point of this movie where it's horror in like a psychological way, right? Very light horror, right? But it's a good it would be a good wrap up. You could and you could do it in either direction. If you watch Jennifer's body afterwards, you could see like a movie with a very distinct point, right? And a very distinct thesis about yeah. Yeah. bodies, their sensuousness, their dangerousness, right? Um if you if you could and you could go either direction with it, but it's also for like the the look of how like the 2000s views a body and views the role of people and how they function in society. Hmm. I, I love yeah. that. And Regan, the the horror point made me think about this moment when we were watching Saltburn for the second time yesterday. Again, in that scene that we've I've come back to now a couple of times where it's after Felix's death and Venetia is just like chugging wine and it starts to like mm-hmm. fall down like the front yeah. of her shirt and stain her shirt as like a foreboding of what um of what eventually happens to her in the tub. So mm-hmm. just yeah, the 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 like occasional moments of horror I thought are were really effective in the movie. Right. Um so my double feature is an, an, an obvious one, and an obvious one for me, too, to make. But, like, I think this is the perfect double feature with Harmony Corinne's Spring Breakers. Mm. Because you have a similar, like, <laughs> no ideas, just vibes. But yeah. nonetheless, it's, like, incredibly fucked up vibes that mm-hmm. just hits perfectly. Um, there's, a, there, there's a way in which both of those movies are playing with color that I think yeah, resonates yeah. with one another. Hmm. There's a way that both of them are interested in, like, the sumptuous lens on human bodies that are understood to be conventionally attractive mm-hmm. that's happening in both films. Like, 
there's the controversy that attends both films. There's the just, like, pure debauchery of both films. There's the way in which, like, you could do a class reading, but it requires a lot of work for both of the films. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of ways. Like, Daniel, you were earlier mm-hmm. trying to be like, well, what is another example of a movie that, like, is just vibes and no ideas? And for me, like, Spring Breakers is the perfect example of that. But that movie does not take itself too seriously, and I feel like this movie takes itself too seriously. Oh, I don't think this movie takes itself seriously Interesting. Right, yeah. I think this movie is like does not take anything seriously except I for think Emerald Fennell is like having a huge like grand fucking laugh at herself and at this movie and like yeah. is witnessed by how funny this film actually is. Right. And the other thing I think that Emerald Fennell is doing also is I that she like so many she's gone on record that she really just wanted to set a movie at a manor and see what happens. I mean, like I I'm I'm here for that part of it, I guess. I'm not sure that this is the version of see what happens that, like, would come out of my brain. But, like, that's cool. Mm. Danielle's setting us up perfectly for the next segment, which is what does Danielle take offense at? Anything else you want to add to the list that you haven't yet got? I mean, out? besides all of it? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, listen, the thing that I took most offense at was, like, the... The labyrinth is, like, only used really for... There are a couple of shots of it, right? Like, and uh-huh. misty shots of it, like, and, shot and like, set-up shots. But then, like, we only are... Re- we're only in it, like, at the end at the party. And it's just, like, what a misstep. What a, like... There could have been so much interesting stuff happening in this labyrinth. Like, that's what I want. Uh, the Minotaur, like, I'm angry about all of it. But, but don't you think that it's also, like... It's it's mentioned, it's, like, a very much planting and payoff situation. Totally, like, yes. Right. Like, Duncan says, like, well, people often get lost at Saltburn, and once they finally enter the labyrinth, they've all lost their damn minds, right? Especially, and, like, Oliver has gotten lost in the mystique of, like, becoming one of them or taking it over. But I think, like, the whole thing with Oliver is that he's lost from the beginning, right? Like, if mm. we want to read it as a story of, like, of of like being lost like he's he he is like craving and drunk by and adjacent to and with the power of it all like from the beginning right like that's mm-hmm. how i would i would read it so i agree with you that like i think there's a way to read it like uh set up payoff but i mm-hmm. like i don't know i just listen i love greek mythology i wanted them in the labyrinth more I I can I can see this, but I would dissent from it. And I if I can, I'll give you the tendentious reading that you gave me earlier, yeah, yeah, which I'll is like, if if they went to the labyrinth three or four times, I think you'd be saying it was too much of the labyrinth mm-hmm. and like stop it with the labyrinth already. But like I'm not I'm not that I'm mostly saying that as a joke. Yeah. The more like the the point I, I will actually make is that like. I think that that was a curious and a curiously good use of, like, quasi-restraint in a film that has no restraint. And I, like, kind of almost appreciated that, like, they just had the Oliver sees it in the library and, like, starts to play with it. And then we get those gloomy, misty views on it. And then, like, a climactic thing happens there. And and similarly, like, I think that it's so, like, the 
the entire party is just shot so effectively and, like, production designed so effectively that, like, the statue in the middle of the Minotaur is just fucking incredible. Agreed. You have the, you have the wings that um, that Oliver, that, that Felix is wearing and yeah. then the horns that, um, that Oliver is wearing. Like, all of that is so effective that, like, yeah, another scene in the labyrinth, like, would have been cool, I'm sure, but I appreciate that they didn't do it more. Right. And, like, it, it, I think it worked well because it was the rare restraint in this film. I think is my is and my they're view. they're using it as like a sort of plot device and to give you more information about the scene about like what's happening. I think because when we watched it the second time, John had pointed out I was kind of sitting there. We were both thinking two different things about the costumes that they're wearing in yeah. the party scenes. Where John had said, "Oh, it's angel and devil." Oh, but I right because yeah, Felix has the wings and then they're kind of they kind of look like devil horns cuz um Oliver is a deer. Yeah. But I had I had run with the the idea and had gone in a different direction and had said like oh I think it's for me it's like the difference of like how deer can be portrayed because you can either see deer as prey animals and in this situation Oliver can be prey so easily amongst all of these powerful people. Deer are also, like, stags are the kings of the forest. And so he takes power by entering the labyrinth where he's in more of a foresty environment. Huh. That, like, that's an interesting read. I mean, my, I was sort of thinking, like, Oliver as a, as a fairy, and I hadn't quite thought through the, like, Mm. broader significance of the of uh sorry not not oliver's fairy felix is a fairy and then oliver Mm -hmm. is a deer like but i like that i like the read that you're offering you can also go with a shakespeare route of like oberon is traditionally portrayed with having horns or antlers yeah that was like the other place that my my brain went so there's another like horns vibe which is like horns is like even, even in shakespeare too like that's what the cuckold gets, right? Mm. They, they get the horns. And so, like, there's maybe something about a, like, longing after that, which you can't have and on some level don't want to have that may also be working there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, that's yeah. not, that's not a formed thought. That's just an association I had right but now. But you know the movie horns um, would also be a great double feature with this film. I don't know that movie. Oh, it is one of the um, film. so it's um, stars... Daniel Radcliffe, like, just shortly oh, after wrapping up Harry yes. Potter. It's based on a um, Stephen King's son's book, I think. And so the concept is that Daniel Radcliffe's character, um, named Ignatius, yeah. <laughs> grows horns overnight, um, and it, they give him powers. It's really interesting film. I think you would also like horns a I lot, think that John. you would like horns, right? Doesn't he, like, isn't he, like, accused of murdering his girlfriend? Isn't that the whole thing? Yes, yeah. yeah. Girlfriend played by Juno Temple, I think. Oh, yeah, I think that's right. Maybe. Girlfriend played by, yeah, Juno Temple. <laughs> yeah. I love Juno Temple. Oh, my God. Wonderful. Danielle, but do you have really other complaints you want to make? Lodge. I'll know, get on the record. I mean, like. Haterade, you want to spell? Just, like, all of it. I don't know. I guess, like, my biggest complaint, and I know that, like, this is, we watched this movie differently, like, the three of us. I just, like, wasn't impressed by the twist. <laughs> and, and like, that was frustrating to me and made it less enjoyable as a result. But also, this is just, like, this was never going to be a movie that I liked. 
Like, this is just not the mm-hmm. kind of movie that I like, and that's okay. Like, I like Marvel movies. I like big explosions where you don't have to do any thinking. I, I, I'm less interested in a vibes movie. And that's it. That's it. Right. So speaking of Marvel, I have a question for you. Do you... <laughs> Knowing that how much you love Eternals, where Barry oh. Keoghan got his, like, breakthrough American role, Amazing. I would argue. <laughs> right? Where he plays Druig, right? Yeah. Who oozes sex appeal. Was it a lot of Was it a lot of whiplash for you to watch this where Barry is not nearly so sexy? I think or do you have he's thoughts? incredibly sexy in this movie, though. I think at the end he is, but... I don't know well, that there, There's, like, key themes... Or key spots. I don't yeah. know that I read him in Eternals as oozing sex appeal. Like, I, the person in Eternals mm. for me that oozes sex appeal is, like, Richard Madden. Harry Styles. Okay. I mean, Obviously yeah. Harry Styles, but, like, is Richard Madden. And so, like, I think that Barry Keough is, like, incredibly charismatic. Um, mm. And I think, like, the same is true in, what was the movie... That he was up for an Academy Award in last year. Oh. Or the year before. Was it Belfast? Banshee's no. Vinishir. Banshee's Vinishir. There we go. Which is the yeah. only movie I've ever walked out of the theater during. Uh, I loved Banshee's Vinishir. I didn't see it. You know what it is? That was like a different kind of I can't handle this movie. One, the fingers. I could not. Spoilers for Banshee's Vinishir. It's fine. It's like two years old. <laughs> but also like the... Friend breakup without any closure was just, like, way too triggering for me. Um, But I thought, like, I think that, I I guess, like, this is a very long and bubbling way for me to say, like, I don't don't read Barry Keough as having a ton of sex appeal, but I do read him as being incredibly charismatic. And so, and those might be, like, similar things, but, I like, I'm, that's, like, where I stand on that. Fair enough. Because I my read was, like, I think he is, like, very attractive. Like, while I think Richard Madden in Eternals is extremely hot, Icarus's character really bothers me. We can talk about it on another episode. We should. Um, <laughs> I'll pass. Right. Yeah. You're, not in, in. You're not invited, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fair. But, uh, see, I don't know. It's just interesting because he is so, like, affectionate and, like, loving in that movie towards Mercury or um, towards Makari that I'm like, oh, wow, like, that is, like, sexy. I don't know. But that's my thought. <laughs> that's it. That's all I've got. Love it. Danielle, did you want to do some, and Regan, I know you and Spain this as well, some mythology corner? Or we covered this ground enough? I think we covered this ground enough. Okay. Okay, we'll go to our other favorite Greek myth. It's time for the cave. <laughs> it's Yes, I did it. Um, Amazing. Uh, Amazing. And it's, as always, it's... Regan's Regan doesn't know this. So this season on the Americans, Regan, we took inspiration from mine and yours journeys through uh, our friend Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we're doing that with Plato this season on the Americans. We're just flipping through. We're picking a random spot. And that is our that is our cave. Are, are you on board with this? Oh, I'm so on board. All right, Danielle, I think you have the you had the correct idea for what Plato we needed yeah. to engage. Yeah, we got to do the symposium. That's the yes. most debaucherous dialogue there is. So, uh, yeah, let's do that. If you just want to send us to Drunk Alcibiades, <laughs> you're you're welcome to. We can do the like random pick a spot, or you can just send us right there, Danielle. No, well, let's do the random pick a spot. All right, Regan is our guest of honor. You get to you get to do this. You just Danielle's going to scroll. You tell her when to stop, and you give her a letter A through E. All right. I'm ready when you are, Danielle. Okay, I'm scrolling, so tell me when to stop. 
Uh, stop. Okay. Uh, give me a letter A through E. Uh, C. Okay. <laughs> I had to- Stressful I didn't think choice. that was between A and E. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The ampersand? I don't know. Okay, we're at 190C, which is within the... The symposium has all of these different speeches about the nature of love. Um, and so we're in the speech of Aristophanes. Um, oh, okay, great. Okay. So, well, Zeus and the other gods took counsel about what they ought to do and were at a loss, for they didn't see how they could kill them, as they did with the giants, whose race they wiped out with a thunderbolt, because the honors and sacrifices they received from human beings would disappear, nor yet could they allow them to act so outrageously. After thinking about it very hard indeed, Zeus said, I believe I've got a device by which men may continue to exist and yet stop their intemperance, namely by becoming weaker. I'll now cut each of them in two, he said, and they'll be weaker and at the same time more useful to us by having increased in number and they'll walk upright on two legs. But if they still seem to act so outrageously and are unwilling to keep quiet, he said, I'll cut them in two again so that they'll have to get get around on one leg hopping. Okay, oh this God. is the perfect. <laughs> Regan, you continue your streak from Aquinas times. You killed it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you do you want to go first, Regan? The second that, that Danielle started reading this, I was like, oh, man, we're back to class. The class reading. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Because I feel like. Zeus is Sir Richard in this, or pardon me, is Richard E. Grant's character Sir James in this moment. <laughs> also Sir Richard, I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think he is Sir. He is a Sir. Um, right, of like, this is like how the Catons view people underneath them, especially yeah. um, Oliver and um, the awkward guy who like eats the candy bar from the center oh, first. That was oh. wild. Classic. <laughs> a wild choice. It. Oh, my God. That was the 2000s, though. Remember, we were so random. Oh, my God. LOL. Whatever. (laughs) Um, Maybe that was just the corner of the internet I was on. Cough, cough. Too much time spent on DeviantArt. (laughs) I don't even know what that is. You don't want to know. That makes perfect sense that Regan spent a lot of time on DeviantArt. I should get back on. I've been following a webcomic on DeviantArt for 10 years that I really would like to catch up on more. It's a fanfic comment about... (laughs) Labyrinth and the Phantom of the Opera in the same universe. Oh my god, love. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Um, so anyways, but my read was like, this is like back to my initial class reading of like, okay, this is what the powerful will do to those under them. Um, right, but then Oliver obviously would put the twist on this and he would take over as Zeus, right? Mm. And he's cutting them in half to make them weaker. Um, and the cutting them in half part make, kills them for the most part, or at least two of them, um, If and then three later on, right? Because he really maybe maybe or maybe doesn't have anything to do with Sir James's death. We don't I really know. That's a that's a no, right? Like that's what inspires him to reconnect with Elspeth. Yeah. And do like to get the final version of his puppeteering and Yes, and, yeah. 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 So yeah. I would say it's a lot. I would um I don't have much more than that. Maybe some more will come to me, but that's my initial thought of like is the the power thing and the class thing. No notes. Um I'll just add that I think the 
the the puppeteer marionette imagery mm. that we get like early nice. on yeah, um, yeah. in the in the movie, and then the very final shot of the movie, like that's that's something I think we could read is that like, well, what are what are Zeus and the other like deities? Um, like, how are they operating vis-a-vis humans? Mm-hmm. Now, granted, humans have my understanding like a little more agency than pure puppeteering, mm-hmm. but I think that like that is the that is an image that I think speaks to the passage from the symposium that Danielle read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I like, I love all of that. I think the thing I would just add is, so this comes right, the this speech is where Aristophanes is sort of describing these bodies uh, of, like, essentially, like, soulmates that are, like, melded together, right? And it's, like, these people that have, like, four arms and four legs that need to be cut in half. And I think, like, it speaks to both, like, think there's a way to read it in terms of like excess which i think mm-hmm. like hits with this with this movie mm-hmm. and then also the idea of like the the sort of like the role that eros plays and like the relationship between eros and excess and that like the only way to like affect a kind of moderation is to like physically dominate these bodies i think like there's a lot of that happening i think we can like yeah. read that through like like through Oliver anyway. Brilliant. Should we should we theory ship? Another segment inspired by Regan. Regan, look at the influence you've exerted yeah. over not quite great books. So my, this is my whole plan is eventually um to murder <laughs> you and take over oh the pod. God. Oh my god. <laughs> Next no Danielle, you're safer. You're far away. <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> um. No, I would never. I would never. That's horrible. Because half the joy of being on the pod is hanging out with the two of you together. <laughs> Amazing. Um Danielle, when are you coming to Plattsburgh? My God, let's go. I will come. I'll come soon. Oh, Danielle has been to Plattsburgh. Yeah, I just, I, I think it was like, it was maybe before you guys were as close as you are now. Before mm-hmm. we, like, knew each other. Probably. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think I was aware of Rian's existence, but hadn't ever, like, really interacted with, with my Plattsburgh bestie. I will, okay. I will come visit. Um, it's been Yay. a little bit of a crazy semester. Hasn't it for all of us? <laughs> but anyways, for my theory ship, um, I'm going to assign all um, to Oliver specifically Roxanne Gay's hunger. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a vampire. <laughs> well, it's, it's more, also Regan. about like respecting like yeah. women's bodies, um, <laughs> which he doesn't respect anyone's body. Frankly, only his own, um, and maybe at some points um, Felix's, um, but also like talks about rising through challenges and yeah. like being true to yourself and like how you want to be. Um, yeah, infamously, my copy of Roxanne Gay's Hunger was supposed to be sent to a Nebraska state senator, um, and I managed to get the copy because the chair of the English department I was working for at the time was like, "I'll buy copies for." four copies for people to send and then i just never sent it so. <laughs> i love that but that's okay <laughs> I, love it. I hate i did not enjoy that man and i feel not bad about making him buy a book for me i'm here for all of that like li- that feels like bad feminist manifesto Regan. yeah it really very is. in very in um, my theory ship is i'm gonna give lauren berlant's uh last book on the inconvenience of other people I think I'm going to give it to Felix. Nice. Because it feels like Felix needs a little bit of a lesson in that. 
<laughs> yeah. And Oliver, like, understands, I think, implicitly those lessons. I would also say that Elspeth would benefit from I, that yeah. book as well. Uh, great point. Yeah, I, yeah, also true. But yeah, that's my theory ship. John, what's your theory ship? Um, I've got two. Uh, one is inspired by um, a conversation you two were having earlier in the pod, and that is I'm going to give Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick's mm. Epistemology of the Closet yes. uh, to Oliver and Felix, obviously, mm. um, just because that's a, that's a book about homosociality and homosexuality and epistemology and the closet and all of these things that is brilliant and was like one of the first like queer theory books that I read and so it holds a bit of a special place for me um, in a reading group in grad school and then the other thing I was thinking about is Young Chul Han's book The Burnout Society Mm. um, which is very much a like late mid to late 2010s book But I think there's, and so I'm going to assign it to Oliver, um, because I think, like, the way that, like, Han is thinking about, like, what are the extremely limited, like, narratives of, like, agency or lack thereof and, like, interactions with other people and structures that and how curtailed those are that are available to us, like, resonates. But more so, I think there's something about Emerald Fennell, like, writing and directing this film in this time period about the aughts that like is is giving the like a, what what aesthetics are available to us in what mm. Han calls burnout society so that's that's what i'm going with all really good like theory ships great great theory ship segments today uh-huh. friends i mean i feel like we've come to the end of the episode which on the one hand i am elated about because i don't want to talk about this movie anymore but on the other hand i love talking to both of you so i'm i am sad <laughs> about that part of it <laughs> All right. Um, Maybe we need to get back together for a poor things discussion. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I'd be into that. That'd be, I would totally be into it. Yeah. Very nice. All right. Regan, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your, I mean, you're, you know, you, I'm I don't know if you. minded this. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if the first time you said it, it was a joke or not, but like in true, not quite <laughs> great books fashion, we took uh, no, the joke was, too seriously. I was um, doing the Regan Legament trademark move of like uh-huh. suggesting something very seriously with a bit of a giggle. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Love. Cool. Great. Glad we glad we made this happen. Yes. Um, Saltburn, a wonderful movie, debaucherous and beautiful Saltburn. and lovely. Don't see Disgusting, it. sick, ten out of ten would recommend. Saltburn. Yes. Negative three out of ten. Don't see it. <laughs> Saltburn. Utterly fucking depraved. Thirteen out of ten. Well, thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books. A TV podcast that's now about movies. <laughs> <laughs>Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.